Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel in the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student at the University of Delaware. And today we have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Matthew Harper, Assistant Professor of History and Africana Studies at Mercer University in Georgia. And we'll be talking to him about his book, published by our friends at UNC Press in 2016, entitled End of Days. African-American Religion and Politics in the Age of Emancipation. Hello there, Dr. Harper. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Adam. Thanks for having me. Good, good. And, and we're, you know, it's been, it's been a long time coming as the song goes, um, but it's definitely coming, this interview, at the correct time. And I'm definitely happy to have you on the program today to talk about your tremendous book. Yeah, well, thanks, Adam. Very good. And so um, before we start talking about um, about your book, can you please talk to us about, uh, you know, th- we're talking about, you know, African-American religion. So I think it's appropriate to say, what, what was the Genesis story uh, uh, like for you w- with this particular book? You know, I was taking a graduate course and one of my uh, professors, Grant Wacker, said, you know, there's a collection of uh, a f- almost a full run of a black religious newspaper that just is just really rich and it's on microfilm and people ought to read it. And you ought to just spend this semester reading it. And it was the star of Zion, which was uh, the organ of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion church in North Carolina. And uh, he said, just start reading it. And I just started reading it and I felt this really deep connection. I just fell into this world reading issue after issue. Um, and I initially thought reading it, that I really wanted to talk about the connections that black ministers in the post-emancipation South made between institutions. They were in the Masons. They were building churches. They were building political organizations. They were involved in black militias. And, and I really imagine trying to help people see the connections really the, of institutions all across the South that black ministers were involved in and in, in working. They're the ones who were largely writing this newspaper, writing into it and editing it. And I, I found their world fascinating and want to write about it. 
And as I kept reading these newspapers and the source project expanded, I kept noticing an intellectual question because I really think the network question was a social history question. You know, how are how are all these networks built and connected? How are all these institutions working together? And uh, but instead, I kept noticing references to eschatology, to the end of days, to end times, to biblical prophecy, and I. I would sort of make a little note and put it into a different stack and say, maybe this will be an article or something. I keep noticing it. And then ultimately, my stack on that overwhelmed my original research. And I, I the project just changed directions at that point. And that's a really cool uh, introductory story because I always find it fascinating how uh, uh, scholars um, of various disciplines come into um, their, their particular topics because a lot of times, right, you have that, you know, uh, you have that spark, you have that professor in a seminar or in a, in a lecture say, you know, go check something out. And then ultimately, 25 to 30 years later, you look back and say, oh, my gosh. That is, in fact, where the story began for me. Um, and, and so I always love starting out interviews like that because I think it's it's always fascinating, like I said, to, and it's also very informative for the audience to know um, a bit about the, the, the scholars and, and where, they, uh, where they came from with their work. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's, for me, it was, it was really valuable just to immerse myself for a while in source material without really knowing where I was going to go. I hope that that other scholars feel that freedom to do that. I think some of the best work comes when when people know sources really well, even if they don't have a book proposal in mind. It's just it's just it was wonderful for me to uh, become fluent in the world of nineteenth century uh, black churches and uh, and then figure out what I had to say after after I understood their world and um, and felt like I was a part of it. Exactly, and so. Because what happens, and I think this goes to uh, issues within the academy about um, uh, 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 training of graduate students and and even of, of scholars, you know, as they get their first jobs, right? You know, like you said, right, having the opportunity and 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 you know, uh, uh, pushing you know, especially graduate students to, like you said, immerse yourself in source material because you know you don't always know where things are going to take you. But you just want to be you just want to have the the freedom to 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 take that that the archive on a ride or or the the archive i guess take you for a ride <laughs> depending on uh, depending on the way it goes um so that you you have the opportunity to uh to have the depth of knowledge to where if you see like a cfp come up a call for paper you could be like well I'm fairly immersed in this archive, so I can. I think I can really make something work, right? In a way that if you kind of have cursory understanding of an archive, you you won't necessarily have that um, that same uh, understanding of the material. Um, and uh, where did you do your graduate studies, so that the audience knows? Yes, I did it at UNC Chapel Hill. Okay, okay. And uh, as we know, you know, UNC Chapel Hill has been in the news the last uh, 24 hours as we're uh, uh, making this interview. That's right. That's right. Making and remaking history. That's right. Exactly. Back in the state, back in the state where um, where this work comes from. And so um, getting into uh, the end of days, um, African-American religion and politics in the age of emancipation, um, can you talk to us a bit about um, and I think you highlighted a bit more, but can you give us a bit more 
of uh, 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 depth of understanding of uh, for this particular story, why the state of North Carolina would would play a prominent role in your story. Right. Well, North Carolina um, offers several advantages. It is it's a rural southern state um, that with a substantial population of freed people um, and. But it's also got several urban centers that were well connected with northeastern hubs of black institutional religion. So New York and Philadelphia and uh, and Baltimore. And so um, it's got uh, a number of black religious colleges and seminaries that were founded in the post-emancipation period. Uh, some of the earliest black southern religious newspapers are published in North Carolina um, I, for the study that I wanted to do, I didn't want it to be an intellectual black history that happened only at the rhetorical level nationally. I wanted to see how these ideas that people had affected local and state politics. So much of 19th century politics is local and state that it, I really needed to pick a particular locale and dig deep and figure out how these ideas mattered to black political decision-making on the ground. Um, I can imagine a study would have worked well in other places. I, I think of John Gigi's really masterful cultural history about the Mississippi Delta, which seems like a very different mm-hmm. place than um, than North Carolina at the same time period. So place matters and it varies. But what I get in North Carolina is I get urban, intellectual, seminary educated, black religious thought. And I also get rural, uh, less educated uh, religious thought that is unconnected to the uh, cultural centers of Philadelphia and New York. Um, so I get you get a lot of cross section, a lot of different things happening in North Carolina, and they also had the institutions in place: Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian seminaries, all African American, founded in the 19th century. That uh, ha- that recorded these conversations. So it's not that the conversations that um, Black people of faith were having in North Carolina were somehow substantially different or more representative than other areas. But when they had those conversations, there were institutions in place to keep a record. And that's why, because um, when we talk about keeping records, um, the, the the church um, that that did that among the best in in this particular uh, age of emancipation that you speak of uh, was uh, was at the AME Zion church, correct? That's right. The AME Zion is the the smaller sister of the AME church. Um, AME church um, is much more successful at sending missionaries among um, freed people and establishing churches throughout the South during the age of emancipation. But in a couple of locales, the AME Zion really had a clear advantage. Uh, and North Carolina was one of those where the AME Zion was more successful at founding churches among uh, former enslaved people than the AME was, um, and Methodist in general um, keep records, and they have a, a connectional structure which allows their records to be housed together, which facilitates conversation across congregations in different areas within a region and a state that um, the more decentralized Baptists don't have, and so. Amy Zion really left a treasure trove of material from the time period. Mm, mm. And, and so that's why, you know, the, my, you know, and we talked about this a bit offline, um, you know, how uh, I have a particular connection to, to the, 
the uh, the 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 big brother slash sister and the uh, the little sister of being the Ami and the Ami Zion uh, through through my um, through my family connection in this region. And so you know that was a, to to let the uh, listeners in on a on a bit of my background. That's why you know when I saw this book come across my uh, radar, I was like, man, I got to get Dr. Harper on here because, you know, th- th- this this book is not only um, important in the field, but it's also important personally, too. So I, I always, you know, find find ways of integrating both of those so that uh, I can, you know, have my uh, clergy family members be like, hey, I got something for y'all. I got a present. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and your book is definitely a, a delightful present for us all. Well, thank you. One of the things I hope that the book does is it pulls the conversation out of just the churches. I mean, I I think one of the things I found most striking is that these religious conversations about the ways that uh, particular theologies affect particular black political decisions, that those aren't happening just in the church. They're happening in um, Masonic meetings, they're happening in women's club meetings, they're happening in the state legislature, they're happening in sharecropper meetings. And uh, that the, this theological conversation is not something that's kept within the walls of church. It's not, it, the churches are really prominent in the book, but in many ways, it's not a church history book, it's really a political history book, where the church and other institutions are all having very similar kinds of conversations that overlap theology and politics. And and I think that integration with theology um, and politics, especially in this age coming in the um, emancipation age, right? I think that was the part that 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 um, overlap. I thought was why your book was uh, uh, so important because. Right. For, for many, the Civil War encapsulated many areas uh, of the Bible. Right. So so, you know, looking at, you know, how people interpret events. Right. Uh, was is that hermeneutics? And so looking at how people interpret the Bible in in conjunction with the events that are happening in their world. Um, I think it was so um, if, if I got hermeneutics right, I might have gotten that wrong. But um, but looking at how, you know, folks look at. Uh, the events that are occurring in their lifetime in accordance with their religious texts. So I thought that that was such a profound way and an important way for uh, for, for for folks to better understand that. So, I, so that was definitely a, a highlight uh, yeah. for, for myself. That's what I noticed. I mean, I think we've, we've noticed for a long time that Americans, white and black and other and of various religious perspectives, saw the Civil War as a meaning of such... Uh, an event of such great magnitude that there was this search for meaning. What could it possibly mean that so many Americans died? What could it possibly mean that 4 million people were freed in one event? What could, what could this possibly mean for the nation? And that search for meaning for many Americans was providential, right? Where's God's hand in this? How can we interpret this, the meaning of this um, as God at work in human history. And I think for those who had experienced emancipation themselves, their own emancipation, it took on even uh, um, um, more poignant meaning for them to understand, you know, if, if I'm to interpret that God has intervened in human history to affect my liberation and the liberation of all my family members, 
then he must be up to something big, right? There must be some larger plan, uh, which this is the climax of. And then the task, the theological task and the political task becomes discerning what is it? What is that great plan that God had in emancipation? And how can we understand the past and predict the future by figuring out what God is up to in emancipation? Exactly, because when I think about how um, how emancipation is interpreted, right, and, and that's why it's also important, listeners, when you look at the book as well, right, the in the age of emancipation, right, because all this is happening connected to a particular uh, a seismic event, shall we say, um, that really uh, uh, hit that high note on the Richter scale that changed, you know, the entire nation. Uh, and obviously we're talking about the Civil War here. And so how folks, you know, interpret it is, is, very, is very important, especially in accordance to their, uh, uh, to their denominational um, aspect as well, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not that we haven't gotten away from that power, the power of the meaning of that event. That's why we're, we're embroiled in these conversations about the Confederate monuments um, is because it's um, the way in which we remember that conflict, the meaning that we give it uh, is still powerful for people, right? That there is political power in how we remember and interpret the events of the past. And that was definitely true for the people who lived in the immediate aftermath of emancipation. And, and, and because of that too, um, with um, with us having talked a bit about this already, but I'm um, getting more in depth. Could you speak to us about the major uh, 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 players um, in, in in your text as well? Um, could you talk about a bit about uh, the individuals who who, who make up uh, your story here? Yeah, there's um, some of them are um, homegrown North Carolinians who um, uh, who had been enslaved. Um, and then immediately after emancipation, got involved in politics. Here, I think of um, uh, in my first chapter, I talk about the earliest efforts to for African Americans to organize politically in a series of Freedmen's Conventions that take place um, across the state and then uh, in the capital. Um, and some of those were those who had been active, uh, who for the first time in politics in the state recently emancipated. Others had been. Um, African-Americans born in the state who had been educated somewhere else and then returned during um, the war, people like Abraham Galloway, for example, and others, many others, were uh, black northern missionaries who came right behind the Union Army lines, planting churches as the army advanced throughout North Carolina. Um, And uh, probably the most prominent of that is James Walker Hood, who was an AME Zion minister, ultimately becomes bishop, becomes grand master of the Prince Hall Masons for the state. Um, uh, is a Reconstruction office holder and stays active in politics there till the end of his life in the early 20th century. Um, and uh, so we've got lots of different kinds of institutional leaders who are having these conversations. And, and I thought that because I, I've I've really thought um, uh, a lot because I I'm, I came across uh, a scholar uh, by the name of Dr. Uh, Abigail C- Cooper. Um, who, who wrote about um, 
the 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 some of the contraband camps and 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 missionaries and and and, and black women. And so I've I've I started to percolate all right some thoughts about you know how uh, this age was also as you talk about the missionary uh, aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Northern blacks, northern black folks coming down, right, with a particular understanding of blackness and like folks like Charlotte, I mean, Charlotte, uh, well, yeah, Charlotte Fortin and her story um, uh, on the Sea Islands, right? And she wrote prominently mm-hmm. about, right, these differences between, right, the blackness that she saw. Uh, uh, she might not have explicitly talked about, it, but you could tell in how she characterized those of, um, you know, uh, uh, black uh, religious folks, right, in mm-hmm. on the Sea Islands or in the Sea Islands during the Civil War. And so, when 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 certain eras of this book made me think about the same thing and how you know the the nature of missionary work um, it, it is still something that uh, I'm, I'm really glad they're starting to become there's coming more and more scholarship on it uh, because I think it's one of the areas that is very much uh, uh, needed in our understanding of kind of Christian charity. And, and also my mother works for the Salvation Army too. So there are particular personal uh, uh, potential stakes that I have in that as well uh, with that affiliation too. Yeah. I tell you, you know, um, Milton Cernet does a really good job of, painting that picture for us during the Great Migration of what happened in northern cities when you had northern churches who had one style of worship, one style of theology, a different kind of tradition, and then these rural southern churchgoers flooding into their churches and the conflict between these two traditions or the mixing of these two traditions at one moment. But it happens a generation earlier when those northern black missionaries come into areas that already have uh, established forms of worship, both public and secret worship. Um, and they have to then, these traditions have to merge again. We see some of that in the earliest Freedmen's conventions. There's fights over, you know, whether or not the delegates to those conventions can accurately re- represent the people that they're supposed to represent. Are they outsiders? Um, and uh, how do they, uh, how do local people control their own voice and sometimes feel suspicious about, um, about, electing or delegates who come from out of state and may not think the same way that the local people do those conflicts show up in the earliest minutes and and i and i love that that you mentioned the, the 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 conventions right because you know um i also work at the university of delaware with the colored conventions project and so you know this this uh this movement Right, that that you mentioned is very very important in trying to understand, you know, how black uh, uh, folks and how how black uh, religious and political leaders how they interpreted right what is going forward because now that the world is different and this change and that emancipation is 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 here during the day, you know, what world are they going to build? Right, what world are they going to create? Um, and so in those conventions, you see a lot of that kind of you know vein of thinking going into the what we now see in the convention minutes and how they planned um for an uh, an unknown future and i think that part right there the unknown future right because it's so easy for us in 2018 to be able to look back and be like well you know blah 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 
But it's like, how, how the hell are they going to know in 1865 and 1866 or 68 or, or 70 or these particular uh, time frames? They had no earthly doggone idea what was about to happen. And I think that part c- can be kind of scary, but, you know, it's a, it's a nice historical exercise. Yeah, but what's surprising to me is actually how many people um, seem to possess a sense of foresight, um, a confidence about a future that they couldn't see or that they hadn't experienced. Um, You know, I opened the book with a story of of Edwin Jones, who was a a stump political speaker, African-American, in 1867, who confidently preaches from um, Joshua chapter 4, uh, that he knows that black people are going to get the right to vote. Um, and this is before, you know, reasonably you'd be able to say that that's the case. Uh, and so it's like, well, so that was one of these puzzling questions for me is that how in a world that was so uncertain where it was not the, the emancipation had not answered fundamental questions about black political rights. Um, how many, how much confidence people had by reading scriptures in a particular way that allowed them to discern God's purpose in human history, predict the future and make political decisions in light of that, that there's a vision that people had, not that it's the same vision. I mean, one of the things I really tried to stress in the book is the amount of debating that's going on, right? That Black ministers don't agree. Black politicians don't agree. People in the pew don't agree with the ministers. People from the north don't agree with the south. People in different denominations disagree. That there's that there's not a single way that black people understood God's purposes in emancipation. But the, what there was was a similar framework that set the terms of debate. That that God was active in emancipation, and that the scriptures held keys to understanding the future, and that there was this importance to what was going on. And by placing black experience into biblical narratives, that they could discern this fu- this future that, in the moment, must have seemed very uncertain, very fraught, um, freedoms that seemed very fragile. Um, but there was a common way of reading scriptures and a common framework that set the terms for debates. And in those debates, black people did not agree. Exactly. And so I also think too about um, more of a methodological question too, Um, as a scholar, right? Because I I don't, you know, I I don't really uh, uh, dabble in in my particular work within the realm of black religion, but I I have a, have a, large interest uh, in it. Um, as someone who's in this particular field of uh, black uh, uh, black politics and black religion and kind of like at, at the intersection, when you're analyzing the particular sources, right, is there a, is, is there a particular uh, uh, methodological uh, way that, that you'll go about this? Or, you know, are there particular questions that because you're dealing with folks, right, uh, um, and, and dealing with faith, I guess, right? Faith in something that you don't know. Is there a particular way that you go about your sources that are that are uh, maybe a bit different? So you know, it's 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 largely a, 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 a an ignorant question, maybe, but 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 largely, I, I literally don't know. So so literally, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I I try to read my sources carefully and closely. Um, the um, the world of the Bible provided people an entire universe of symbols, images, stories that 
allowed people, a, a language world is what one scholar calls it, a way to piece together meaning and talk about the world, the sort of Bible itself as an idiom. And we see this all over Black author documents in the 19th century. Um, you'll even see it in a lot of non-religious writers will have quotations from scriptural stories or biblical imagery in the titles of their books. Um, but often those images go uninvestigated. Right? But what does somebody mean when they say um, city on a hill? What, what biblical reference is that when someone says the word Jubilee, that's a reference to Leviticus, what does it mean? Um, I decided to just follow up every reference, every symbol, every image, whether it came from a spiritual or it came from an Old Testament story or whether it came from some bit of the Gospels or something that um, Jesus was recorded saying in one of the Gospels or uh, a passage from the Psalms, a prophecy from Jeremiah, was to assume that the writers did not haphazardly sprinkle biblical references throughout their book, uh, throughout their writings, whether that was a letter to the editor or a sermon or a uh, political speech, but that, that they did so deliberately and that those allusions to scripture carried particular meaning. And one of the ways I was able to find that out is, is to read other sources in response. That is, was the readership of these writers attuned to the particular biblical references that were being made? And the answer was yes. And I, I'll give you one example is um, an early uh, a political document that gets referenced often in Reconstruction Studies um, in 1870, when um, black state legislatures under attack, the Republican governor is uh, being impeached by um, uh, by a hostile legislature, and the Klan is running rampant through the middle counties of North Carolina. Um, and they produce a document that interprets their entire struggle as the retelling of Queen Esther's story which is one of the exile narratives in the Hebrew Bible. And they retell it and everyone gets a part. Um, and ostensibly, that document is a call to prayer and fasting. But if you know the story of Queen Esther, you know that, um, the, that at the end of that story, the politically persecuted minority group, that is the Jews who were living in Persia, they don't actually win politically. The, the king doesn't call off the enemies. Instead, the king says, well, we've already put out an edict that calls for the massacre of Jews. And in Persia, you can't override a royal edict. It can never be repealed, not even by the king. But he gives them another edict that allows them self-defense. And so um, nowhere in that document that refers to Esther do the authors ever talk about a right to self de to armed self defense? But it's very clear that everyone who read that article, read that circular, was alarmed, talked about it in those terms, understood that by referencing Esther, they were making a claim for armed self-defense. And so I think it's really important for us not to look at religious documents or look at religious language and say, oh, look, here's a reference to Moses, or here's a reference to bondage, and here's a reference to a nation's being born in a day, or here's a reference to the 23rd Psalm, and say, this must be religious. Instead, we got to figure out, well, what is the reference? What's the prophecy that's being referred to? What's the story? Because there's a lot of meaning in these 
in these stories. And people are often referencing different stories to stake out different arguments within Black communities or to make claims from Black communities to the white elite. And so we miss a lot of what's going on in Black politics if we don't read religious sources carefully and closely. And I think that's so true in the sense that, uh, you know, I, obviously, you know, the world and 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 life is uh, much different now in 2018, and in comparison to you know, uh, uh, you know, this time frame uh, when it comes to uh, uh, nascent and 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 cursory understanding of of, of religious uh, texts and such. Um, but but I think you 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 highlighted a very very important. Um, intersection when it comes to religion and politics, which I don't think people have ever really stopped understanding. It's just how it manifests itself, right? So because of the religious right is literally in its name, religious and right, right? So it's very much, you know, really uh, the religion and the politics, but it's very much in a different context with a different uh, kind of set of rules. And so uh, it's taking it back to um, to the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s uh, within within the sphere of blackness, you know, it, it, it's a different it's a different kind of life. And so, like you said, to to not take into account, you know, uh, uh, you know, the AME uh, review, right? Benjamin Tanner, right? You know, the, the important uh, religious text, right? You look at someone like um, even the Take It Out of North Carolina. You look at uh, William J. Simmons, right, who gave a lot of opportunities to to a lot of uh, black women within the Black Baptist movement. Um, it, that uh, that um, that uh, what's her name, uh, uh, Doctor uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, uh, talks about so so prominently with Righteous Discontent, which is a book everybody needs to read, y'all. It's older than me. And so uh, and so I, I really think that um, you, you highlighted something that's very important because uh, politically um, you, you, you can't not talk about it, I think, too, um, especially because I, I, I interviewed um, Dr., uh, Reverend Dr. Gary Dorian for the first part of his um, two-part series on the, on the Black Social Gospel. And you don't have King unless you have... Right. The or and you also don't have uh, uh, Bishop um, uh, uh, McNeil as well. You don't have him and, and other figures unless you have, you know, these particular conventions, black social gospel. Um, but it's all intermingling in the kind of work that you're doing. So it's, so all of this is really also in conversation with your work, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we sometimes. Um, don't ask the right question about the intersection of religion and politics. We want to know how much religion and politics or where is religion involved in, the, in politics. We sometimes ask, did religion drive people to politics or drive them away from politics, give them an otherworldly focus on the next life? Or uh, And um, even we're talking about contemporary issues, we talk about the religious right is, you know, uh, do we want religion in our politics? Um all of this assumes that religion is a singular thing and you can add it or take it away from politics. It sort of motivates or inspires people to get involved um, or that it shapes politics in a particular direction. But you know, the religious ideas are so diverse. Uh, even the texts in scripture are there's there are myriad texts and people interpret them in myriad ways. And so um we need to spend more time just asking the how question, like which which religious ideas affect which political ideas in what ways? 
right? Um, otherwise, we end up lumping together the religious right and Moral Mondays, which is a religious political movement in North Carolina today. <laughs> and uh, right, we end up we end up lumping all of these together and not understanding the ways in which different religious ideas impact politics in different ways. We can't sort of measure this on one axis, how much religion in our politics. That's really not the right way to, to answer. That'd be like, you know, how much economics in our politics doesn't make sense as a question, right? Which, e- which economic systems, which ideas, who affected them, right? And so um, this is something I think that religious historians have understood, but sometimes doesn't always um, make its way into our better political histories, which is to know that we can't just talk about was religion important to black politics. We, yes, it was important. The question we have to ask is which black religious ideas, right? And which, how did different ideas affect black politics differently? We've got to dig deeper and get to the content of religion if we're going to understand how religion and politics work together. And, and that's why we like to to highlight, you know, you talked about, you know, religious historians being, you know, ones that, you know, who, who make these particular and, and know about these particular quandaries that 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 befall our society when it comes to our understanding of of the at the intersection of race and politics. Um, so that's why I'm glad that I was able to to get you on the program to be able to highlight your work, uh, because you're definitely um, so, someone who scholarship, um, especially, you know, in, in the case of what we talked about online, too, uh, about uh, your next project, we, which we can get to uh, on, on here a little later. But, um, you know, your, your, your work is definitely hinting on a lot of these particular important 19th century, but also 21st century issues about, you know, uh, because largely as well, right, there, there's some citizenship stakes that are involved in a lot of these debates, too, right? Because not only do you have a new nation, but you have a new meaning on 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 and a new lease on on who is American, who gets to be American, and so all these are are, are citizenship and democratic uh, uh, ideals, but they're they're being acted out in a in a time frame of a lot of turmoil, but a lot of opportunity as well. Right, and 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 recently, freed people encounter this that problem in different ways like they they too are trying to imagine what place will they have in this nation as citizens um and for many of them they look to biblical narratives to help make sense of of their place in the nation so there are those who looked to an exodus narrative and in that narrative saw right that following freedom is a mass migration to a new homeland right and that if African-Americans are not experiencing full citizenship after emancipation. It must be that they're supposed to reenact the migration of ancient Hebrews out of Egypt through the wilderness and into a new land. And so we see, particularly in the collapse of Reconstruction, migration movements to Kansas, other places in the West, to uh, Liberia. Um, We see in North Carolina, oddly, a, a migration to Indiana, uh, as a promised land. Um, and, uh, and then other African-Americans say, no, 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 no. It's that, well, well, we don't need to see an exodus is a mass migration. Instead, we ought to look to other biblical narratives like Jubilee in the book of Leviticus, which is the claim that, um, that slaves are freed on the 50th year 
the year of Jubilee, and that there's property redistribution so that the land goes back to original owners and those who had lost land or become enslaved in the previous 50 years get to start over with a clean slate. And so we see really uh, powerful arguments by Black Southerners for a right to the land. And that narrative of understanding we belong here and we have a full and equal right to the land itself is really different than those who are claiming migration as the way to fulfill God's promises and emancipation. And the Esther narrative that I just mentioned um, uses the exile narratives of the Old Testament to really think what is the place of a persecuted minority within a land where the majority is hostile to their very presence. And how do they, how do you eke out an existence in that kind of scenario? So whether it's Exodus or exile or Jubilee, the way that African Americans use the Bible to understand their place in the nation after freedom varies wildly. And and I, I really enjoyed that particular part because uh, that that particular part of your story because for one, um, you know, scholars like. Um, uh, 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 Nell Irvin Painter and and her uh, Exodusters, uh, a prominent book uh, from some time ago, and and uh, you know I'd recently interviewed um, Annalisa Cox for her book, uh, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, talking about black uh, pioneers, and so you know a little bit beforehand, but but you you saw some some African Americans coming from North Carolina, so there had been a migratory uh, uh, bit as well prior. But the interesting part that you highlight is how, right? So you have these different emigration stories, but it's also like how do people justify? them just staying here. Right. And, and that's where you go to back towards the religious nature uh, of, of, of your, of your uh, subjects here and how many of them saw North Carolina as the place where hell or high water, they're still going to stay despite some appalling and very violent uh, uh, repression of them. Would you be able to highlight some of, some of the repression uh, that they faced um, while in North Carolina? for those who did decide to stay? I mean, the violence was physical. Um, we have, um, the book highlights a lot of the, the terrorism by the Klan in, um, in the 1870s, and there's a migration out of the state shortly after that. We've got uh, ministers, school teachers being shot, pregnant women being killed, uh, children being tortured. Uh, it's some of it's 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 really horrific, um, and they're giving testimony on this. We've got um, elected representatives being murdered in the basements of um, county courthouses during political conventions. So it's it's a bloody and dangerous time for people. Uh, but a lot of the persecution is also economic. So uh, once uh, conservative Democrats regained control of the legislature in the 1870s and then into the 1880s, they passed a series of landlord and tenant laws, which strip power away and rights away from tenants and give more and more to landlords. Landlords are allowed to be the ones that interpret and enforce the documents uh, the agreements between landlords and tenants, um, it uh, prohibits, they have, they press stock laws, which prohibit uh, tenant farmers from being able to let their animals roam 
freely. So then tenant farmers in many ways can't keep livestock as well, which makes them more economically dependent upon landlords. And so all these economic changes that are taking place mean that for workers, tenant farmers, sharecroppers in the state, life becomes untenable. There's not a way out of poverty. There's not a way uh, to make ends meet. And so they began to, to leave. Interestingly enough, a lot of uh, black ministers, school teachers, legislators are deeply invested in local institutions. Uh, and it's against their best interest for the black working population to leave the state because their institutions will become depopulated. And um, they strive really hard to convince the population that they shouldn't leave, that they would be better to stay in North Carolina than to seek higher wages in the South, deep in the deep South or further out West. And given the size of the movement out of the state, they weren't always very successful at convincing their congregations to stay put. And, and that particular story is important um, in my understanding of you know the 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 really the push and pull factors because uh, I've been teaching uh, I've been co-teaching a uh, uh, a course with a colleague here at the University of Delaware on you know um it's kind of like English and history um it's how to make them better writers and, and and analytical folks and so one of the things that we've talked about um were were uh, push and pull factors right what makes someone want to stay but also what's you know, and pull people to a place, but also what pushes someone out. Um, and so uh, having many of these students who were unaware of, of, of you know, repression and, and the violence that comes during this period. Uh, and so when you show it to them, a lot of them have different understandings of, of what, you know, words like reconstruction or slavery or civil war actually mean. Um and so also one of the other parts um, when we talk about folks leaving are also folks you had mentioned before about missionaries. Um, and, and I'd use the example of Charlotte Ford and Pryor. Could you talk about a bit about the, the usage of missionaries in your book, in your text, but also some of the friction that, that came with, with uh, some of the missionary work uh, and the individuals that came with the missions? Right. Um, so there's the missionary movement, which overlaps really well with the Reconstruction period, uh, you know, is massive. Um, and there's investments from uh, northern churches, white and black, into that missionary movement. Huge numbers of investments. Um, uh, Ed Bloom's book um, um, does a really good job. I'm trying to think of the name of that title of, of his book. Um, his first book that does this, but it really highlights just sort of the massive contributions that congregations all over the United States make to, uh, to the South. Um, and often there's a deep sense of gratitude and respect, um, uh, that the local people had for the education, the resources that came, uh, but there were plenty of tensions as well. Uh, one is that, uh, Northern black missionaries were coming down, taking political power away from local people. Um, often these missionaries came in um, with a particular understanding of middle class morality that wasn't uh, achievable or desirable by local populations. And so there would be conflict there. Um, um, at other times, they built institutions 
to, um, say, for example, Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is um, a Baptist school, Black Baptist school, but it's run by the American Baptist Home Missionary Society, which is largely a white northern organization um, that come down. And as the century goes on, uh, more and more African-Americans start to chafe under the fact that their own institutions, that, that they think of this as theirs, are actually in the control of missionaries from churches somewhere else. Um, sometimes those are white missionaries. Sometimes those are black missionaries. Um, and they begin for a movement for greater autonomy. This is largely what's behind the movement for the creation of the National Baptist Convention at the end of the 19th century is how do you get black Baptist institutions in the hands of Southern black Baptists uh, because they largely weren't. And, and I also think about how, you know, and you had mentioned just then how, you know, it wasn't just white missionary groups as well. It was, um, it was actually uh, missionary groups uh, 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 who are are African American as well. Because Because I think sometimes people get the, uh, mischaracterization that um, it was exclusively uh, uh, white organizations that that led efforts, but it was also African American ones as well. And um, and every now and again, um, in some of the source material I've seen, you find some uh, some troubling uh, 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 statements about um, you know some of the religious practices um, that Southern Black folks had in comparison to their Northern but still Black. Uh, uh, compatriots too. Right. And those vary by missionary and they vary by denomination. Um, but right, you'll often see um, writing which condescends to, to describe uh, Southern practices as superstition, as, um, as overly emotional, as um, having elements of African religions that they think are unchristian Um You'll see a number of that in the writing, a kind of embarrassment by Northern Black missionaries. Um, but, you know, to be honest, um, most of the Northern Black missionaries writings who I looked at, um, you would find these references occasionally, but largely they found themselves too embroiled in defending the political rights of Southern freed people um, for them to uh, focus on a to make those critiques broadly available to white people. So largely those conversations might've been happening within black churches, but when those black churches turned outward, uh, they often were much more concerned about defining and defending black freedoms than they were critiquing uh, black religious practices. Though you see both in the source material. I was just thinking when you were talking earlier of a conflict that happened in Newburn, North Carolina in a church, uh, um, in the midst of the Civil War, it was a, a white Methodist. I mean, it was a Methodist church with a majority black membership, and then it had Southern white Methodist leadership of that congregation. And the Southern white Methodist minister fled during the war, and um, an AME minister comes into town as a missionary. An AME Zion minister comes in as a missionary. A Northern Methodist minister comes in. A Northern unaffiliated or uh, minister comes in. And there are four missionaries, two white and two black, competing for the allegiance of one black congregation in Newburgh, North Carolina. And one of the very first acts as a free people is having to decide which missionary they want to be their minister. And they have to end up appealing all the way up to the secretary of war in in Washington, D.C. to arbitrate 
who gets control over this congregation. Um, and uh, ultimately, the Secretary of War says, you know, let the people in the congregation decide and becomes this act of freedom. This is a, a moment of enfranchisement where black worshipers in the South, some of their first voting is voting on which missionaries they want to um, to take over the pastorate of their churches. So these are these are political acts. These are acts as a newly freed people for them to determine um, who they want in leadership over them. And and that that that's so interesting because you know we're talking about going all the way up to you know the Secretary of War during this time, right? Like for 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 some that might seem like a like a a, a petty church uh, um, a conflict, but no, for 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 the for those who are you know who are the, in the majority in the church as far as congregants, right? You know you want to see. You know, you know, y'all talk about democracy. So, you know, let let let's see it, right? Let let's let's get involved, right? It's not like we haven't wanted to get involved all this time. Y'all have barred us literally from doing so, and so it's so so uh so cool to hear about how some of the first bits of voting that African Americans had in this region that you talked about in New Bern, I believe, um, you know, they it wasn't at the ballot box, or at least in the conventional sense. It was it was within their church walls as well, um. And so that's a that's a truly tremendous tremendous story, um, and, and so as well. And in, in in the short time that we still have with you, um, can you speak to kind of the the uh, the nature? Because I think it was so cool that you mentioned Shaw before. And so um, you know their most famous um, their most famous alum is uh, Ella Baker, and so. You know, she she's a very uh, important important figure, obviously of the 20th century. Uh, but can you highlight, um, you know, the history and, and some of the organizing um, of of some of the uh, of the black women characters um, in your book as well, um, as 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 far as their um, their religious um, uh, grounding here? Because obviously, you know, they're uh, as far as a, a clergy, it's going to be a little different. But uh, talk about the stories of some of the uh, African American women. Um, in, in case in, in your narrative. Yeah. So um, the AME Zion is the first black denomination to begin ordaining right. women um, to, uh, to the Finnish clergy. And they do that in 1898 uh, is the first time that they ordain a woman to the position of pastor or elder, as it's uh, mentioned in the, in the Methodist traditions. Um, though there are deacons and preachers much earlier than that. Um, but black women have historically and today make up the majority of black churches, right? So they, they, they predominate in the pews. They are often writing, they occasionally write letters to the editors in these um, black religious newspapers to join the arguments. Black women occasionally uh, come together and organize joint statements like they did during the crisis in Wilmington in 1898, where they urged men to risk bodily harm in order to make it to the polls and vote. Um, and they used biblical arguments to um, to shame the men into voting despite the threats of violence. Um, there are um, a, often missionaries employed by these churches. Um, one of the ones that features prominently in my fifth chapter is um, a missionary, R.A. Williams. And she 
is a part of the women's auxiliary movements. So they're often these denominational groups will have women's auxiliary conventions that meet sometimes in conjunction with the church conventions of male clergy. Uh, they organize release ef- relief efforts, moral reform campaigns like temperance and prohibition. Um, they um, produce literature for Sunday school, um, but they also are having discussions about politics uh, and all of those things. And we see them addressing conventions, making those arguments publicly. Um, a lot of the really prominent uh, women writers from sort of black politics area and black churches in North Carolina have been written about well by others. So uh, Glenda Gilmore's Gender and Jim Crow covers an overlapping time period as my book and covers North Carolina and uses some of the same sources that I do and really highlights how active black women were. And sometimes black women even had the ability to say publicly what black men did not have to because they were not perceived um, as a, the same threat that black men were. So you see a really a real active black women being really active in the public sphere as they're making these arguments, particularly I see in the temperance movement, which is the subject of my fourth chapter, um, as an area for them to see, feel empowered to uh, enact moral reform in their own communities. And they're able to do that um, in ways that, um, that affect change both in black churches and um, in state politics. And thank you for that, because, you know, on on the New Books and uh, African-American Studies podcast channel, we we love to cite uh, black women and uplift the 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 names and the and the stories of of, uh, of black women, uh, you know, throughout the diaspora. And so I definitely appreciate you on that part. And so um, in closing, in in the last couple of minutes um, uh, with this particular book, being done the end of days could you speak to us about um some of your new book some of some of your new uh uh, work right some of the stuff that you're working on because this book was published in 2016 so uh you know it's been a couple years and so we we would like to know because sometimes you know we get a little greedy on the new books and african american studies channel because we always like to know when to expect our authors, uh, uh, writers, and, and historians, right, to be able to come back and 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 have a little chat for 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 about an hour or so. Well, when I was writing the end of days, I um I kept in the back of my mind that I my next project I wanted to start with the Baptist War in Jamaica in eighteen thirty one thirty two. Uh, I got it. I think initially attracted just because of the name Baptist War. I definitely um, can see that. I, I'm, I'm intrigued <laughs> my, my dog on self. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, um, it's a massive slave uprising in Jamaica that is organized out of the local Baptist church there. Um, and the Baptists in Jamaica, um, controversially at the time, uh, would elevate enslaved black men to leadership within local congregations as preachers, as deacons. Um, and these leaders created networks that disseminated news within the British Empire about uh, slavery and the abolitionist campaigns that were happening in London. They uh, organized and and disseminated news from a state to a state. um, And they began preaching a gospel that was um, anti-slavery, that considered slavery to be illegitimate. And ultimately organized a strike um, across uh, sugar plantations in the north and northwest parts of the island. 
and uh, the strike led to become the second largest uprising in um, in the Western Hemisphere, um, by some counts, second only to the Haitian Revolution. And um, it ultimately is unsuccessful. That is that um, even though it was a relatively nonviolent strike, it was met with massive violence from the uh, colonial militia on the island. And black churches were destroyed. Um, missionaries, particularly white Baptist missionaries from London, were exiled from the island and sent back to England. And uh, and when they get there, they're able to give testimony of the brutality of the colonial militia to peaceful Baptists striking for dignity and freedom. And um, and it helps sway public opinion in the uh, debates over uh, emancipation in 1832-1833. And the British Empire does vote for emancipation in 1833. Parliament does. And uh, so studying that got me really interested in understanding networks of radical black religion throughout the Atlantic. Um so astute leaders, re, uh, listeners will recognize that another radical Black Baptist <laughs> struck out against uh, slavery in the very same year in Southampton, Virginia. And mm-hmm. so this idea that – so we've got um, the earliest of Black overseas missionaries, actually the first – overseas missionary from the United States period was a free black man from New York, Moses Baker, who went to Northern Jamaica um, uh, shortly after the American revolution. And, uh, and then a group of um, black Baptists in Jamaica ultimately um, leave after emancipation and take uh, form a mission in Cameroon. And there they encounter British colonialism in Cameroon and then later German colonialism. And, uh, and so I began to want to know, right, what, what's going on here? How are black missionaries um, in the U S in the Caribbean, in West Africa, how are they encountering slavery and colonialism and where do they find themselves uh, cooperating with those powers and where do they preach gospels that are resisting and fighting back against those, those groups. And so um, I'm not really sure that's going to go. I'm definitely in the stage where I'm immersing myself in source material and I want the material to speak to me. Um, But that's what I'm asking now. Well, hey, you know, uh, we, we, we see uh, based upon the last 59 minutes and 33 seconds and counting how immersing yourself, you know, uh, where, where you can go when you immerse yourself in the source material, because, uh, you know, it, it led you to a tremendous book, The End of Days, African-American Religion and Politics in the Age of Emancipation. So if if uh, if that's what happens you know, when, when uh, Dr. Matthew Harper goes ahead and immerses himself in the in the material, then I think we'll be on here fairly soon to be able to talk about this great new work on Black Atlantic, uh, uh, um, on Black Atlantic uh, religious uh, radicalism. Um, and so I already know that that's going to be a bomb ass book. <laughs> well, thank you. And thanks for having me. This was a great opportunity. I've enjoyed your podcast and I enjoyed the interview as well. Thanks. Very good. Very good. And so once again, folks, we have had the the beautiful and amazing opportunity to have on here Dr. Matthew Harper, Assistant Professor of History and Africana Studies at Mercer University in Georgia, uh, in Macon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so once again, we've had him on the program, New Books in African-American Studies, to discuss his UNC Press 2016 published book, End of Days, African-American Religion and Politics in the Age of Emancipation. And so 
once again, we've, we've uh, had the great opportunity of having Dr. Harper on. And until next time, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil, the New Books in African American Studies channel. Over and out.